Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. Listeners, we have a special episode for you today, and we're going to be focusing on digital threats in armed conflict. Now, for those of you um, in the know, you might call this things like cyber warfare or information warfare. And what's prompted uh, this recording today is the release of a report of group of experts from the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, and also an article that one of our guests has written called The Eight Rules for Civilian Hackers During War. So let me introduce our two guests. We have Cordula Drog, uh, who is the Chief Legal Officer and Head of the Legal Division at the ICRC. Now, Cordula has a job that, um, you know, is just a small uh, small job, which is to uphold the ICE, uphold, implement and develop international humanitarian law. Cordula, it's lovely to have you with us uh, this morning for you, this evening for me. Thank you for having us. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. And our second guest is uh, Tilman Rodenhauser. He is the thematic legal advisor at the ICRC HQ in Geneva. And I know Tilman quite well from the work um, that he has been leading for the ICRC on cyber, digital and the online dimensions of modern conflict. So Tilman, wonderful to have you with us today. Good morning from Geneva and thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, Tillman and Cordelia, we're going to get into those two reports that I've spoken about um, in the intro there. But before we do, I wanted to address a couple of elephants in the room. And these are questions that I get asked every time I talk about these issues. Um, The first question, which Tillman, I'm going to throw to you, is does international law or international humanitarian law even apply online and in cyberspace? Are we just, you know, making this up? I'm not sure I can answer that question in front of Cordula because (laughs) after she read the 10 statement that I made on this in the UN, she actually told me that I sound like a broken record. (laughs) But it's your podcast, you ask it, so I will answer. And there are both legal and diplomatic points on that. But the very first one I would make is cyberspace is human-made. Human-created, humans operate in it. State agents operate in it. So why would the rules that states have established for their interactions between each other, why would these same rules not also govern their conduct when they operate in the space they created themselves? But if we get then more to the law, and in particular to international humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict, the rules and principles that states adopted here, they're formulated in a very general manner in order to apply to a variety of methods. For instance, distinction means that civilians and civilian objects shall not be targeted. It doesn't specify whether this is by sword, by rifle, by missile, or by cyber operations. And also states have put on themselves the obligation to to review new means and methods of warfare according to existing international rules to see if they are in part or all the time unlawful. And if these rules were not applying to new means, the whole rule would not work. So logically, it must apply. And this is also the view that the highest international court, the International Court of Justice, has taken, where it said, that international humanitarian law applies to all means and methods of warfare, including those of the future. It said that in 1994, and there clearly cyber was one of these methods of the future. And frankly, I've not had a conversation with a lawyer where the lawyer really would challenge that subject. 
but there is the diplomatic dimension to it that you're very familiar with. <laughs> I was going to say, I've heard a few diplomats challenge it, but not diplomats um, that are, I would consider to be like-minded diplomats. But sorry, Tillman, I'm interrupting you. Yeah, if, if you do look at the diplomatic side, here too, I would argue that today the question on both international law and also international humanitarian law is settled. Over the past two mm. decades, states have met in various formats in the United Nations to discuss cyberspace or how it is called the information and communication technologies in international relations. And here, since 2013, states have agreed that international law applies to the use of these ICTs by states. International humanitarian law is part of international law. So it was somewhat surprising that it would not simply be considered as covered by that. But there have been discussions about the issue. And I remember an Australian diplomat having a robust argument with other states publicly in the United Nations about that point. But since 2021, <laughs> I think the issue has been agreed or we understand it to be agreed among states because states developed or adopted a consensus report and a group of governmental experts. And it has a section that provides an additional layer of understanding on how international law applies to the use of ICTs by states. And in that section, it states international humanitarian law only applies in situations of armed conflict. So it is hard to read that any different than to understand that the international humanitarian law applies in situations of armed conflict, but of course, including those that involve information and communication technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And Tillman's being um, very diplomatic there. The robust arguments by the Australian diplomat is the former Australian diplomat, aka me. And I very much um, agree with your assessment there, Tillman, that yes, there were robust discussions back in 2001 uh, about this issue. But we really have, I think, put this issue to bed with the consensus reports that we had uh, coming out in 2021, which was from the group of experts, but then was also in endorsed by every country at the United Nations um, through the General Assembly report as well. So, Cordula, before we get really into the meaty stuff, the other question that I get all of the time that I think we need to address before we move on is it's all well and good that we have agreed international law. We've now, Tillman has set out for us that we've agreed that international humanitarian law, the laws of warfare, apply when states are operating in cyberspace just as they do when states are operating in the physical domain. The question I so often get, though, is, well, what's the point of agreeing these rules if we know that states and countries are violating those rules, whether that is in potentially in cyberspace in the context of Russia's war in Ukraine, or whether we're talking about more in a, a physical aspect of what's happening at the moment in Gaza. So as the ICRC's chief legal officer, I'm sure that you have a very strong response on this and we'd love to hear it. Yes, I get that question all the time, of course, as well. What is the point of international humanitarian law? It doesn't work anyway. The point is that international humanitarian law can save lives, it can protect the dignity of people, and it can prevent a lot of destruction. Now, the paradox is that, of course, it has done so, in fact, over the decades. It has saved many lives. It has prevented people from disappearing. It has protected detainees. It has protected civilians. But it hasn't done so anywhere near enough. And so, of course, because the value of human life cannot be measured in numbers, we cannot be satisfied and we have to concentrate on, on better respect um, when you look at, when I look at conflicts today, 
and I look at the rules, I think how right these rules are and how just they are and how they address mm. many of the problems that we see. They prohibit torture, they require the humane treatment of detainees, they prohibit the targeting of civilians and the use of indiscriminate attacks, they protect the wounded and sick. And so they could, if they were better applied, prevent so much suffering. And as you said, you know, when the rules are broken, they don't need to be fixed, they need to be better respected. And when we now look at evolving warfare and the digital and online dimension of warfare and digital threats, what we need to do is to ensure that international humanitarian law is also applied by the parties in these contemporary methods of warfare, that they apply it actually, that they interpret international humanitarian law also in good faith in order to maintain this balance between military necessity and humanity on which humanitarian law rests. Um, and also ultimately to monitor whether their interpretation, their application, or lack thereof, um, requires the development of new rules of international humanitarian law to keep pace with the evolving nature of warfare. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely spot on. And for me, um, it is important that we have agreed what the rules are, because that allows us also to call out when those rules are broken. Uh, and it is important that we call them out when they're broken. Uh, and there's lots of conversations going on in that respect at the moment. Now, for listeners who don't have a legal background, both Cordula and Tillman have been referring here to means and methods of warfare. Um, this is like saying, uh, effectively, are we using missiles or are we using malware is a sort of you know useful uh, distinction for us to bring to that. Between 2021 and 2023, recognizing that we had uh, evolved this new means and method of warfare uh, in, in the digital environment. The International Committee of the Red Cross president, uh, former president, Peter Maurer, convened uh, the Global Advisory Board. Um, and this is a board that brought together high-level experts and it was global. So there was experts from all around the world, around 20 experts, but you know all of the large uh, jurisdictions uh, were represented. So there was um, uh, folks from the US, from China, from India. I was one of the board members um, representing Australia in our region. And the experts of the board had legal, military, policy, and tech backgrounds. So it was diverse in its composition from whereabouts from the regions, and it was diverse in the expertise that people bought. Now, unlike the UN discussions where when I previously was engaging at the UN, I was engaging on behalf of Australia. In this instance, the experts are there engaging uh, as themselves. But the whole point of the report was to bring together these experts to develop and advise on digital threats in armed conflict and to develop concrete recommendations to protect civilians against those threats. So, Cordelia, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the background? What prompted the ICRC to bring together this board um, and also the continuation uh, of the board under the new president of the ICRC as well? Yes, so the entry point for the ICRC was, as it is for all new challenges, if I may say so, is on the one hand, the human cost of evolving warfare and secondly, international humanitarian law. 
And we had over the past years um, observed, but also analyzed what was or could potentially be the human cost of cyber warfare. And of course, we had observed that there is um, more and more cyber attacks with disruption of civilian infrastructure, not necessarily only within armed conflicts, also outside, but easily, uh, you know, transposable to armed conflict situations such as essential services, electricity networks, even power plants, um, nuclear power plants. So you had these risks for civilians that exist with a potentially devastating human cost. We also had observed specific threats to um, hospitals and medical infrastructure, as well as to humanitarian services and, and organizations such, such as us, which during the course of the Global Advisory Board then became uh, much more important. Mm. And so going from that human cost, what, what we wanted was to have these, these high-level experts, and as you said, for us, it was critical that they came from different horizons, from diff, you know, from beyond the geographical and political divides, because international humanitarian law and humanitarian action has to be global. Um, international humanitarian law is, in a way, a com common good of humanity, and so we need to apply it also across digital, uh, across geographical divides, cultural divides, religious divides, etc. And to help us think through these digital risks, um, essentially in two ways. One was, what are the risks that we see, but also which are the risks we do not know as ICRC or have not um, concentrated on and what are we missing? And secondly, how should we as ICRC then go about them? And this is a very complex question mm. on several levels because... You have, and that's, I think, specific to the digital and online world, you have an incredible multiplicity of stakeholders, including, in particular, the private sector, which plays a more prominent role, I would say, than in previous, you know, aspects of warfare, um, at least in, in the modern world. You have more and more civilians getting involved also because these digital platforms are very easily accessible for absolutely everyone. And so there is a risk. And this is a risk that we discovered more or saw more clearly over the course of the time in which the, which the advisory board helped us think through. And then, of course, you have this global reach of digital threats across the world. So you're not just talking about one or two jurisdictions or within a civil war, just between the parties that are sitting on one territory, but digital risks are global risks. And so these complexities, um, to, to sort of unpack these complexities was really what we were looking for uh, from, from this varied expertise um, from, the, from the board. And we had a, a great, Time, I think, <laughs> with you, uh, Joanna, and all the other experts from the board to think, think through these things and to indeed certainly for us at the ICRC to discover things that we had not thought about, to think through things more deeply that we couldn't have done 
by ourselves. And that was really for us uh, what was very precious about uh, about the board. Mm. No, I agree. I mean, it's always extraordinary. People often think just diplomacy or bringing together groups of very different people is all um, cocktails and champagne and Ferrero Rocher. I think that's the, the TV ad. But actually, it's an incredible thing to bring together a diverse group of people who bring different perspectives and then to find common ground. And that's really what the ICRC did with this report was bring that diversity of views to the table and say, okay, there's going to be some things that we don't agree on, but there's also a lot that that we do agree on. And that's what's in the report, which is a, a report that is agreed by all of the experts. So Tillman, perhaps you could talk us through what you see as um, the key elements of the report. And then I might get us, each of the three of us to highlight what we think are our favorite parts. And we'll see if there's crossover between the three of us. Yeah, I think I think both of you mentioned key elements of the report. Uh, one, and that I think is really important, is the multidisciplinarity. And it's both in who was on the board. So you had mm. military policy, civil society, legal expertise. But then also the recommendations, Joanna, you mentioned, the board has 25 recommendations. And they are designed for belligerents that can be state and non-state belligerents, the latter meaning armed groups, two states, then to tech companies and to the humanitarian sector. So you really also have a diverse set of those to whom the recommendations are addressed. And then what I really like about the recommendations that the board came up with, when I look at contemporary armed conflict and how the digital dimension plays out, you find recommendations on most of the most concerning issues for us. And you find them throughout the recommendations. And that is, Paula touched upon them, it's cyber operations, primarily against critical infrastructure, critical civilian infrastructure, be it electricity, be it water, be it medical facilities. You then also have what the report calls harmful information. Many refer to disinformation, hate speech, and this information aspect of warfare. And here the report has two angles on it. One is information is key for people. When you think about being in a, in a place affected by conflict and you seek information about where to, where to, have, where to find safety, usually we, we go online. So connectivity is key there. Or you want to reestablish links to family members that you lost track of. It's key to have connectivity. And so the report, for instance, addresses shutdowns. But the report also addresses the whole aspect of hate speech and the encouragement of IHL violations in armed conflict. Then the third dimension that runs through the report are threats against humanitarians and humanitarian organizations. Kodler mentioned it that at the ICSC, we are one of the many organizations that have been targeted both by cyber and by information campaigns. And the third aspect that is addressed in different, the fourth aspect actually, that is addressed in, in various levels is the civilian involvement that we've seen growing so, so quickly over the past two, three years. And so in the report, these 25 mm -hmm. recommendations really have both diverse and, and multidisciplinary um, background addressees, but also various dimensions that you find in them. So Tillman, uh, thank you for that overview. Um, it, it's um, captured it very well. Um, there's 25 recommendations in the report, as you mentioned, and we won't go into all of them. Um, I'd love to, but I suspect that people have other things to do with their time. So let's choose one each, perhaps, of a recommendation um, that you think we should have a bit more of an in-depth conversation in. And listeners, we haven't pre-organized it, so I'm curious to see if we all choose the same recommendation. So Kudula, why don't you go first? 
first, which recommendation would you like to focus on? Yeah, I'll, I'll perhaps take two to illustrate the point about what I like about the report, which is, again, this input that we got from others and that perhaps also tempered, if I can say it this way, <laughs> IHL or, or humanitarian instincts um, or, or found a more in-depth and more granular understanding for the recommendations. One of them is about misinformation, disinformation and hate speech. And as humanitarians, we're, of course, worried that that endangers human lives, as it has done in some conflicts. And so the, the reflex would perhaps be to say, you know, you cannot do this, you have to, um, you have to prevent uh, these kinds of um, misuse of digital platforms, social platforms, etc., in order to protect civilian life. And because we had human rights experts also in the, in the room, we then had to also think about what's the reflex then is, do you just shut down everything or do you actually say you still need to have freedom of expression respected? You need to have information and communication that is possible for people, including to find, uh, you know, life-saving information in armed conflict, such as where's the shelter? When will there be an attack? Uh, where can I find humanitarian relief, etc.? So just to to one of the one of the parts of the recommendations that I find interesting. And the second one that I think also illustrates this point is that because we're worried about the increasing involvement of civilians and including also of private tech companies in military activities and for military purposes, we all wanted, I think, to try to separate what is civilian from what is military. And that's, of course, extremely difficult um, in such a situation where mm. the platforms are, are intertwined. And so the board is not just saying you have to separate, but it then we discussed uh, quite in detail how can we what does it mean to say the military shall not use the internet? So we have to be much more specific saying that if civilian services or infrastructure are used for military purposes, they have to be to the maximum extent possible physically and logically separated. So physically can mean that an our own cloud computing infrastructure or an own satellite is used by the military, or meaning that if that's not possible, a certain partition, a digital separation, which at least protects the civilian part of that cyber infrastructure platform uh, from um, military risks. So I think it was the granularity and the, the you know bringing these different aspects together that. Uh, I found very valuable. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think the conversation around harmful information and the balance of protecting civilians and protecting and promoting uh, freedom of speech was a really fascinating uh, set of conversations. And the point about military distinction. So, you know, Tillman mentioned distinction in his 
opening remarks, and this is a fundamental principle of international humanitarian law, right, that you shouldn't target civilian objects. But when, you, when you're looking at this in cyberspace, when it's so entwined, it's actually really hard to distinguish what is civilian and what is military. And so there are recommendations to that effect in the report. And one of the things that I really like, uh, Cordelia, in the, in the report is that we also acknowledge that just because this is difficult doesn't mean you don't still have an obligation to do it. And that for me was important that we had that reflected in the report. And we do acknowledge that this is not easy to do, but we still have those fundamental principles of protections of civilians that we need to uphold. Um, so Tillman, uh, what about for you? What What's the recommendation you'd like to highlight today? I was hesitating between several. Um, one was what you actually just discussed, the segregation of, of infrastructure, because we discussed it in some depth and we discussed it with mm. the military members of the board. If you say that, for instance, communication satellites that provide communication to civilians should not be similarly used for military operations, because if they are, then they can potentially be targeted. To us, that's a super important point, and that is one that will remain very valid and important. But then, you know, they came back and said, oh, but uh, that is not possible. And how can you say we shouldn't use the Internet? But, you know, it came to that granularity where you also agree, well, no, actually, the military also has its own ports. It has its own airports. So why would it not also, at least as a default position, have its own military communication system because of the risk that that poses to civilians if they use civilian infrastructure. But let me pick one other one as, as my new favorite, which is the point where the, where the experts agree and where everyone said that if new legal rules and norms are developed, they should build on and strengthen and not undermine the protection of civilians and other protected persons that existing international legal rules already provide. And I think that is we, we are, in all honesty, we are asking ourselves the question, is international humanitarian law sufficient? Sufficient Is it fit for purpose? And of course, states are discussing that in the United Nations. But the important bottom line is that if states feel that new rules are needed, then they should build on the consensus that we've had for many years, for many decades. Because otherwise, well, the, the board felt very strongly that it would be very difficult to find the same strong consensus that exists and the universal ratification that all states agree on this today. And so we shouldn't you know, throw the baby with the bath when we speak about new rules. If new, new rules are, are needed, states may negotiate them and may adopt them, but they should build on what we have and not undermine that. I think that's a very powerful message that came out and really was in, in depth discussed and agreed among all members. Yeah, I very much um, agree. And I feel a little bit like I'm making you pick your favorite child at the moment by uh, by choosing the recommendations. I had also um, highlighted um, the segmentation. Uh, one is one of my, my favorites. And just to emphasize here, we're not suggesting that we need to have a separate military internet, but we are saying that you need to separate where where practical and where possible. And so I'm going to choose uh, two, two different uh, recommendations and they're very much related for me. Um, 
and it and it largely came out of when when the board was first convened. It was before uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, this conversation happened um, then in the context of of that uh, that conflict, um, and a big part of what we saw in Ukraine or what we still see in Ukraine was the encouragement of civilians to participate in uh, in armed conflict. Um, so, you know, we saw, for example, the Ukrainian IT army, we saw Anonymous uh, putting out a call and others, uh, other hacktivist groups um, really encouraging civilians to get involved. And so, that was something that as a board um, we made some strong recommendations on in terms of that we shouldn't be encouraging civilians to participate. Um, and if we are, we really need to make sure that those civilians understand that they then become uh, a participant in the conflict. It doesn't matter then if you're sitting in Australia behind a keyboard, um, you are still actually participating in the conflict and you potentially lose your protections uh, as a civilian in doing so. So there's recommendations around that. And the flip side of that, or, or perhaps sitting alongside it, is recommendations around the tech companies that are engaging in this conflict. So um, we saw a lot of um, large tech companies, for example, on the ground, in uh, especially um, uh, even in the, uh, the first days of the conflict in Ukraine. And so there are recommendations saying, well, we do need to make sure that tech companies themselves understand and monitor that their services may actually participate, may constitute direct participation in the hostilities. And I think this goes to the point that Cordulio was making, that this report is really responding to the situation that we have seen evolving uh, on the ground and real issues and really challenging issues, right, uh, in terms of, well, you know, if your country is being invaded, of course you want to call on all possible resources uh, to help defend your country. Um, but we do need to make sure as we're doing that, we are cognizant of the protections that are put in place to protect civilians. Um, and uh, the report provides recommendations on those. So for me, it's the, the uh, encouragement of civilian participation and uh, the advice for tech companies that I would um, draw on. Um, Cordelia or Tillman, do either of you want to comment on those recommendations? Well, I think what's nice about yours and Tillman's, it's you're going from the most foundational you know, back to the basics. And, you know, we, we didn't mention that perhaps our favorite recommendation should be that IHL applies in, in science. It isn't a recommendation, but it's it's the foundation. And I think that's still important to say. And as Tillman said, and we have to then use this as the bottom, you know, as the bottom minimum if, you know, to start any any conversation. So I think it's it's you chose a really good one, Tillman. And as to the one on, on civilian involvement, I think what it what was interesting there is that, you know, back 10 years ago or so, when we thought about the potential human cost, we saw these things vaguely, but they haven't yet materialized in a way that is so stark now. Um, and so I think that's that was interesting also about um, what happened during the course of the of the advisory board in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how much of the human cost you know materialized there and if i take the recent uh, uh, conflict you know in in gaza as well i just mentioned um the recommendation about not shutting down communications because they can be life saving and we saw 
in such a conflict that when you don't have recommend, you know, when you don't have communication, you can't call the ambulances, you know. So it is uh, these these things basically that we discussed during the during the report and the recommendations. Also, I think are very live issues in in the conflicts that we see. You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or, even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. One of the things um, that we discussed uh, in on the board was the extent to which um, we should have cooperation or conversation with hacktivist groups and hacker groups. Um, and I was really delighted to see, uh, Tillman, uh, the, re- the blog post that you put out. Um, and this is the eight rules for civilian hackers during war and four obligations for states to restrain them. So it's not just for the hackers, it's also for countries. Can you tell us a little bit about the article? What are the rules just at a very high level? And what motivated you to write the article? And then we'll come after that to the response to the article. I definitely want to do that. But please do interrupt me if I get too lengthy because there's there's a lot of interest and passion involved. And I don't want to I don't want to bore the listeners. <laughs> Let me- <laughs> well, you won't bore me, so go for it. Let me start with the motivation. Um, over the past years, as, as you've now mentioned, we've seen unprecedented levels of cyber operations by a really diverse group of civilian hackers. So non-state individuals or also hacktivist groups that now participate in armed conflict. But it's not entirely new. Actually, that phenomenon was already observed in 2003 during the US invasion in, in Iraq. But it has taken you know, new dimensions and new, um, yeah, an unprecedented level in numbers and also I would say in sophistication. And if you just look at numbers that you commonly find on the internet by a, a person called Cyber, Cyber Now, he says, or uh, his latest assessment is that in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, you have, uh, you have 51 such groups participating on the Ukrainian side and 72 on the Russian side. And in the Israel-Gaza context, you have 19 on the Israeli side and 118 on the, uh, on, the Gaza, on the Gaza side. So it's really, we're speaking about hundreds of groups, we're speaking about many more individuals. And what really concerns us at the ICSC is the potential human cost that may result from that. Because many of these groups, some of these groups go after military targets and, uh, and direct their operations against the military, but many go after civilian infrastructure, after banks or after companies, pharmacies, hospitals, railway networks, or civilian government infrastructure. And that, when I look at it from a humanitarian law point of view, this is unlawful. This is in violation of international humanitarian law. And that motivated and triggered us to look at it through a legal angle and see if we can formulate rules based on existing law that will resonate with them. Because from from conversations that we have in that area and that we, from people that we spoke to, hackers we spoke to, people related to groups that we spoke to, some have strong ethics and they have their own guidance. may or may not comply with with, with IHL, with humanitarian law, but some have that very strong focus. Many will not know that there is international law or international law applying 
to the operations. And some will think that they're in cyberspace and there are no rules in cyberspace for hacking. And so for us, the point was to make very clear that actually these rules exist. These rules are based on international law and hackers, if they participate in armed conflict, if they cause effects in countries affected by war, then they have to comply with these rules. And what we did is we essentially looked at what do we commonly see as operations and what are the rules that apply to them and how can we restate them in a way that resonates with people who do not have a legal background necessarily. And what you find in these eight rules are some very basic principles. One is, for instance, do not target civilian objects. So do not conduct your cyber operations against anything that is not of military use or belongs to the military. Or do not conduct operations that cause indiscriminate effect. So don't use a malware where you don't know how it will spread and whom it will affect, or where you know that it will spread widely. Also, the principle of precautions, that you do everything feasible to avoid an incidental impact on civilians. So even if you go after the military, do that in a way that you focus the harm on the military and that it does not cause excessive damage to civilians. And that was actually, we discussed that with hackers and they explained to us how they have done that. So it's really not a pie in the sky. There's something they did intrinsically, some of them, and we then put in these rules. You also have some what we call specific protections. So do not target medical facilities, do not target humanitarian organizations, do not target nuclear facilities or other uh, objects containing dangerous forces. So that could be a chemical plant, it could be a dam. And we also included information operations. And this is this harmful information aspect is important. For instance, do not conduct operations to threat violence with the, with the primary purpose to spread terror among the civilian population. And we've seen such operations being conducted, including by hacktivists. And in the online sphere, also a basic rule of do not encourage, do not instigate, do not incite IHL violations. And that also means don't use your Telegram channel or don't use your, you know, your, your social network to encourage others to conduct violations of international humanitarian law, to target civilians and uh, yeah, to commit such, such wrongful acts and in some, in some cases such, such crimes. And what's really important, and I just mm -hmm. want to hammer that one point down, it's based on existing international humanitarian law. It's not the ICRC or Tillman and his colleagues sitting in their room and, and drawing up rules. It is based on the rules that are internationally agreed to apply. And so it is also not a new ICSC code of conduct, but it is international humanitarian law and how it binds these hacktivist groups mm. and individuals. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Um, I mean, all of these things, right, are building upon the foundation of international humanitarian law um, that has been agreed and evolved over, over centuries. So, Tillman, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story. You published uh, the blog articulating the eight rules. And then what happened next? It was indeed a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. The, it was published as a blog, but it was very early on picked up by the BBC and by a journalist that has worked a lot on activism. And, and he had contact to several groups. Mm -hmm. So what he did is, as a journalist, he took the rules and, and he showed them to a number of groups and asked for their reactions. And so on the day the blog um, was published, also an article by him came out where he actually uh, showed very mixed reactions or initially very negative reactions from several groups. There were, some of them were saying, if you follow that rules, then we can't really operate. And others were saying, who's the Red Cross to, to tell us anything 
uh, who are them who are them to tell us what the rules are and that of course is is not what what you wish for if you put out such a post but then and that was that was quite significant over the next two days um the next afternoon one of the groups came out and said look actually um we do want to comply with these rules it makes it difficult um, but not impossible and we do want we do wish to comply with it with, with those rules that the red cross uh, has published and the next day another group came out saying actually uh, it was the leader of that group saying actually yeah i i also agree with these rules they are important and he translated them uh, into it was published in english english he translated in his language and put it on his telegram channel where literally hundred thousand people follow and he put that out and says these are the rules to follow us by our hackers which is really significant if they do i don't have illusions that all of them will but if some do that will already be significant and even then we saw in the weeks and uh, days and weeks after anonymous for instance published publicly whoever is behind their tw twitter account they tweeted positively about it and that is the hacker groups i think what was almost as not almost as rewarding but what was also really significant to see is i had various interactions with with states and they said, yeah, we saw that and, and we have discussed that. And I think for them in particular, these four obligations for states on restraint that they have to put in place is really important. And we are glad uh, that, that states have taken note of that and probably are thinking about this. But then also the wider cybersecurity community. Everyone is always you know, quick in dismissing, oh, these rules are, ah, no one will comply with them. But actually what we got is from many with a cybersecurity background that they said, no, that makes sense. I had a white hat hacker telling me, look, this is one of the most meaningful things that I've seen in that area for a long time. And cybersecurity specialists that formerly worked in quite high level in government saying similar things and saying, yes, that that should be pursued and the Red Cross should be active in that field. So it was uh, some very negative reactions, but also some quite positive reactions. And that was great to see. I think, again, Tillman, you're being very modest there uh, to publish something like that. And as you say, uh, it's specifically written uh, to be understandable by people who don't have a legal background, but have a strong code of ethics. And the reality is many of these hacktivist groups are driven by uh, a strong mission. And so being able to provide them with a set of rules, which you can align a mission. And, and as you say, not everybody is going to do this, um, but it is really really, uh, really significant and very important. And having hacktivist groups on both sides of the conflict in Ukraine publicly stating that they will follow uh, these rules, uh, having a group like Anonymous making that kind of statement, this is a really significant uh, milestone that um, you and the ICRC should be very, very proud of. We have similar conversations around the application of international law, whether it be in cyber war, cyber conflict, but also in other fields like laws, which is lethal autonomous weapons, or with respect to drones, um, other new types of means and methods. How do you think that the conversations and things like the board report, um, the article that Tillman published, how do they relate to these other evolving forms of warfare? All evolving technologies, I think, you know, since chemistry and now in the digital world have opportunities, but also risks when they are used in armed conflict situations. Um, 
are now the digital risks the most important risks, the more important than traditional means of war? We don't know and time will tell. But in the meantime, the question for us again is, always with the two entry points, what is the human cost and what does IHL say about them? And does IHL cover and address the issues um, and are there gaps in what we must address? And so if you look at cyber, what we have discussed now over the course of this, uh, of this podcast and which is also what the ICRC thinks is, IHL applies to uh, uh, warfare in, in cyberspace, but we must work for better knowledge of it. We must work for good faith implementation and interpretation. Um, we might have some new tools to better implement it, such as a, an emblem in cyberspace, a red cross and red crescent emblem in cyberspace. Perhaps one day we might need new rules, but at least for the moment at the ICRC, we're more in the, in the mood of concentrating on what exists and how to apply it. On autonomous weapon systems, you have the same questions about human cost and what IHL says. Now, as opposed to cyber, actually, um, where we had these discussions that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast on um, you know, a, a controversy around whether international humanitarian law applies or not. There is no such um, controversy really with respect to autonomous weapon systems. Everyone's always agreed that international humanitarian law applies. So here too, in order to discuss as well whether we need new rules or not, um, the first step is to see how international humanitarian law applies, how it has to be interpreted in good faith, um, and how it will protect um, victims of armed conflicts against misuse. But second, the question that we asked ourselves at the ICRC and that many others uh, uh, have, of course, asked and, and um, responded to positively is whether we need new law to address the question of autonomous weapon systems. And the question of whether you new, need new international law always starts with whether there is a gap in existing international um, And from our perspective at the ICRC, there are gaps in several ways. Um, one is that although we believe that international humanitarian law applies and addresses many of um, the potential risks of autonomous weapon systems, what we also see is that the inter interpretation by states remains extremely opaque, uh, rather indeterminate. And so the risk for us is too high that international humanitarian law will be applied to autonomous weapon systems in a manner which perhaps formally upholds IHL, but essentially will undermine its protections. Secondly, there is uh, a risk of, of human cost, um, perhaps beyond IHL, is that, of course, autonomous weapon systems might also end up in the wrong hands. Now, that exists, of course, for, for many weapons, um, but it's an extremely dangerous weapons that risks being quite widely available, quite cheap. You were asking about drones. It can be, um, you know, used um, through drones, through vehicles, through uh, um naval uh, vehicles. It's just a question of applying an algorithm to a robot, if you will. Um, and thirdly, uh, there are profound ethical questions um, about leaving 
human decision-making, if I can put it this way, to, uh, sorry, about leaving decision-making about life and death, not human decision-making, to algorithms. Now, it's not really decision-making, of course, so it's a bit of an image that I'm giving you, but it basically takes out of the hands of humans and takes away human judgment to the benefit of algorithm and a lot of trust in algorithms to take decisions about who lives and who dies. And that poses very profound ethical questions to which in our assessment, humanitarian law doesn't have also all the answers at the moment. And so to perhaps come back to the common threads between, you know, cyber, online dimensions of, um, of armed conflict, autonomous weapon systems, what I think we have to look at and, and what we think at the ICRC, we need to look at new technologies through the prism of human centricity. They have to be, new technologies should be human centric. And what I mean by that is that they should support human judgment and not replace it. And they should support the protection of victims of armed conflicts and not put them in increased mm. danger. Yes, I hope that listeners, if you take one key thing out of this conversation, that it is not a question of if international humanitarian law or the laws of armed conflict apply, it is a question of yes. how it applies. Um, and that's a really important question, not if, but how. So Tillman, uh, last question, what do you think is next? What, you know, you've just had this, you know, quite extraordinary uh, roller coaster, as you describe it, uh, with the eight rules for hacktivists. What next for international humanitarian law and cyber operations uh, or digital threats? Maybe let's make it broader. And that's actually important. I, I think the, the conversation has evolved a bit in also in our understanding from cyber alone to cyber being combined with information operations to also somewhat digital tools being used to encourage civilians to participate in armed conflict. And so it, it, it grows from being a pure cyber focus to actually having a much broader digital dimension. And I think that that is an important understanding for us to have. In terms of what to focus on, one of the new, newer things, and we have discussed it now here in this podcast too, is, is the civilian involvement in conflict, be it the tech companies that were mentioned, be it the, the hackers, be it individuals in, in different ways. And building an understanding of what that means will be important. And building that understanding in particular among states, militaries, parties to armed conflict, because the bottom line is that the closer civilians and companies and, and their infrastructure gets drawn to armed conflict, simply the, the, the risk of them being targeted grows significantly. And, and that risk needs to be on the radar. And also, at least all the, the non-state um, participants, if they do participate, they, they have to comply with the same rules. And that understanding needs to be built too. So there's, there's that aspect which at least over the past years has received some attention, but needs to have more reflections in particular among states. I have a more profound point, which I still do think needs attention and it needs attention in particular among, among lawyers and humanitarian law lawyers. Traditionally, we look at kinetic warfare. We look at bombs, we look at missiles, we look at, at traditional, in a way, traditional violence, but in all its evolving forms. And then when we started looking at cyber operations, we looked at those that have somewhat similar effects. So, you know, having a cyber operation, breaking something physically, causing a fire, opening a dam, causing physical destruction. And very soon, 
know, most lawyers agree that yes, if that happens, then the same rules apply and these principles um, make sense in that context. But now when we look at how over the past decade cyber operations have been used in armed conflict, we rarely see those effects. Uh, cyber is rarely used to make something break. But what we much rather see is that government services become unavailable, data is destroyed or is encrypted, functionality is affected. So it's, it's in a way a more subtle, a less physical way of damage. But uh, recently a, a minister called the whole digital dimension, the nerve system of our society. So it is, you know, it is operations against this nerve system. And now we need to build a better understanding of how the existing rules apply to these kind of effects. And there are different views among states, even those states that consistently say international humanitarian law applies, they have adopted different interpretations on you know, what protection is there for data against, uh, against damaging it, against deleting it, destroying it. How about taking down government services? Is that, or any type of civilian services, is that prohibited by humanitarian law? So we need to get more granular in the conversation because otherwise that really important consensus that states worked on and, and achieved that humanitarian law applies may not have the desired protective effect that we, that we really want to see. I'm certainly looking forward to doing some more work um, with the Tech Policy Design Center in the space around civilian participation. Um, I think this is a really important area and we'll share some more about that in the coming year. So let's wrap up now um, just with maybe a recommendation uh, from each of you. If our listeners are looking to find more information about what we've uh, discussed, we'll obviously put links to the reports and to the articles. Um, but is there something that you use as a go-to uh, for uh, recommendations for people when they come to you saying, you know, I'm interested in this, I'd like to break into the field? What do you recommend uh, people have a look at, Cordula? Okay, um, I should of course say this, should first read the Geneva Conventions, it's always a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I have a copy sitting on the shelf behind me. <laughs> now, Tillman and I had just a two-minute exchange about what will we say to this, and Tillman says his wife th thinks he can't read. <laughs> now, I can read, but I never read law books, and so can I um, actually recommend to uh, novels? Yeah, please. Which is what I really like reading. Um, and they were both published in 2019, so they're not so new, but I think they, they really capture some of the discussions we had in, you know, in, in the fictional world in which they are. And the one is um, by Jeanette Winterson, and it's called Frankenstein. And it's uh, basically um, taking up again uh, Mary Shelley's 1818 Frankenstein uh, allegory, which is probably essentially about hubris. Um, and applying it to the challenges and the changes that we have today and, and what unsettles us and us in our humanity and human condition today. One of them is artificial intelligence and how do we um, make sure that artificial intelligence doesn't take over uh, our human judgment and our humanity. And the other one is gender fluidity. So the two are dealt with in that, in that book. And the other one, um, is on a similar theme, and it's um, uh, Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan, which you might have read. Um, and of course, it's, it's Ian McEwan, so it's a very elegant uh, book, which is also about artificial intelligence, but much more importantly, well, what I think it's about is about um, how artificial 
intelligence, but also artificial judgment relates to human intelligence, but also to human judgment and value judgments and about what happens when machines apply very strictly rules that we all agree to as humans, um, but perhaps come to results by applying these rules to a very messy human world that requires much more compassion, empathy, human value judgment, um, and that perhaps might not lead to results which we would really agree or feel as being really humane. So I would recommend those two books, which are really about the ethical challenges about, of artificial intelligence, but resonate very much when you think about autonomous weapon systems or online dimensions of conflict. Thank you. Some great Christmas uh, reading recommendations there. And it's alarming to me how many novels that I pick up that I find now have echoes of the work that we do, which I, I guess is just representing how much these issues are becoming part of the popular conversation, which is, again, a, a wonderful thing to see. Uh, Tillman, your recommendations. See, I noticed some of the books that Kodla, or both books that Kodla just, just mentioned, because I have the ambition to read. I just rarely find the time to read non-work stuff. <laughs> So what, what I will let, what I will give to listeners is, is some work things. And one is when we speak about the online dimension, it's often important to actually understand to some extent, what are we talking about? What, what is the real risk and the threat and how is that, how is that being done? And I was recently in a course that was taught by, by a guy called Danny Moore. And he has a book called Offensive Cyber Operations, Understanding Intangible Warfare. I think that can be really helpful to, to create a basic understanding on, on, on what the digital dimension of warfare is. And in that context, I want to mention two more books which will be coming out. And they are from two members of the Global Advisory Board. There's Marcus Villet, who is the former uh, director of cyber at GCHQ, who is writing a book about his understanding of cyber warfare. And you have Arnaud Croussier, the former head of uh, Comcyber of France, uh, who similarly published a book, probably in French, about his understanding of the same subject. And I think that can give listeners a good understanding of, um, of what is the reality that we look at. But then I shouldn't stop here and mention one more thing, and it's an online tool that will help people with the law. It's called Cyber Law Toolkit. And it, it has about 30 scenarios. They're all based on real world incidents, which shows the scenario and how international law applies to it. And that is done in very short, small articles and very approachable so that people can see what does the law say about reality. I think that can be very helpful to get a basic grip with these topics. Thank you so much, uh, Tillman. And I think you can be forgiven for, for not reading novels with a small baby at the moment, but um, we'll come back to you in six months uh, and see if you've read them. Um, thank you so much to both of you um, for being so generous with your time. For our listeners, we've had a few tech issues in recording this, which is always a challenge, um, but Cordelia and Tillman have been absolutely gracious. Um, uh, so thank you very much. Uh, and um, thank you for the work that you do and look forward to continuing to work with you into the future. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. Get involved.